Dotnet Rocks episode 630 with guests Dick Wall, Joe Nuxall, Carl Quinn, and Barry Hawkins. Recorded live at Codemash in Sandusky, Ohio, Wednesday, January 12th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl. All right. So welcome to uh, Codemash 2011. My name is Barry Hawkins, and I am the moderator for this evening's panel. So if, you, uh, if you're like me and work around the country um, and do a lot of work with .NET or Java shops, you can pretty much guarantee yourself that if you ask, so do you listen to any podcasts, you are going to hear uh, generally uh, with some disdain that you even had to ask uh, that somebody who's in Java uh, listens to the Java Posse, uh, and somebody who's in .NET listens to .NET Rocks, and if they're really cosmopolitan, they listen to both, so they stay abreast of everything going on. Um, so we have with us tonight 100% of .NET Rocks and 75% of the Java Posse. Um, I'm sure most of you know, but uh, I have with me uh, tonight's panel is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell of .NET Rocks. Throw your hands in the air like you mildly care, my friends. And uh, from the Java Posse, uh, Dick Wall, Joe Nuxall, and Carl Quinn. Tor Norby is here in spirit, uh, but not corporeally. And we sat boy, girl, boy, girl he on purpose. He may be into the spirit. Nice. Trying to figure out which one of the boys, which one of the girls. Yeah. Good, evil, good, evil, good, evil. Bill wants to open us up here. Okay, as long as you open up the bottle. So we've always found that bourbon makes the best panels, <laughs> and through a connection, my uncle is the VIP tour guide at Maker's Mark, so we have VIP bottles oh. of Maker's Mark for Thank all of our panelists nice. tonight, and they Beautiful. have promised to oh, that's good. That's good. polish <laughs> off a bottle over the course of an hour, yes. <laughs> I wasn't going to like put you on the spot, but sure. Listen uh. to this. <laughs> Very nice. Does anybody have to pee now? Just <laughs> that word. Well, anyway, thank you, Bill, for furnishing us all with a bottle of Maker's Mark. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Bill. It's funny, the audience is clapping as if they were going to get some. That's so, right. <laughs> so presumptuous. <laughs> Perhaps if they clap long enough, they will. So uh, what I don't this, know. <laughs> we, can make, we can make it a simple rule. You ask a question, you get a drink. Yeah, what this means is that the panel is going to get more and more interesting as the night goes on. At least from our point of view. (laughs) It's just like drive home. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. 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 Code mash to Bill's uncle to Java and .NET. Oh, dick. Yummy. Hey, Joe, there was no eye contact there, man. There you go. All the glasses have now touched. The sipping of the bourbon will now com- commence. <laughs> Ooh, that brings high school right back. I can't wait to boot and rally later. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> then we'll tip some cows. Is that what you're saying? No, we didn't have cows. Oh. <clears throat> All right. So, 
So basically, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. I mean, CodeMash, for those of you who are veterans and uh, for you first-timers as well, uh, CodeMash is one of the few and one of the best uh, cross-platform conferences uh, that's out there in North America today. Um, the, group, uh, the group behind CodeMash prides themselves on bringing together folks from the Java, .NET, Python, and Ruby communities. And so I uh, thought it would be pretty cool if we could actually get the leading Java podcast and leaving, the leading uh, .NET podcast together in one room and uh, ask them some questions. So we're going to open with uh, an initial set of questions, but uh, beyond that, they will, uh, I can assure you, uh, having just had dinner with them, there'll be no shortage of conversation. But if you have a specific question that's not covered, feel free to approach one of those floor mics that look like they require you to be 5'7 and 6'2, um, and feel free to ask your question and do the whole adjusting thing like that as needed. So, uh, first question, and we'll uh, we'll go in. Um, I'll tell you what, we'll just start at Carl and work down uh, a, f a few things to which, go through. Which Carl? Oh God, there are two. <laughs> the Carl at my the Carl closest oh, okay. to me, just like Karen Carpenter, um, if you're old enough. So, for each of you, just real quick, how did you get into software? I started out in uh, well as a hobby with hardware, um, and then digital hardware because that actually worked a little better. Then I found that actually I could make things work with software. So my major at college was computer science engineering. So from an early age, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I think my story is pretty much the same. My father was an electrical engineer, and he taught me uh, electronics at a very young age. I remember burning my fingers on a soldering iron at like six. Yep. And uh, so first few computers that I owned, I built myself. And uh, he sort of went from the, never did anything else ever in my life, you know, pretty yep. much. <laughs> I at least masturbated. Nice. So, anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, I feel so much better knowing that, actually. <laughs> and there goes the PG rating. Yeah. <laughs> we just blew that one right out of there. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm a little different. I was into computers around, like, fifth grade. VIC-20, Commodore 64, sort of followed the whole Commodore thing. I funded my uh, purchase of my next computer, uh, a 128, by hacking software on the 64 and selling it to people. So, that nice. was cool. But I actually went to college for engineering, physics, and electronics and was going to go be an astronaut. And uh, condensing the story, in 93 when I graduated was when they had a huge hiring freeze across NASA. So my, I had an office picked out. I had everything all set up. I was going to go work on Code E at NASA Ames. And a couple months before graduation, it was just, bam, sorry, Joe, you, uh, we know you were going to hire you. We can't. So I ended up going to work in tech support at Borland. Uh, you know, live on the beach for a little Which while. Which is almost the same. Yeah, it it's pretty much almost the same. And then very quickly, you know, you got up into R&D and then was, you know, down the path of making good money and writing software and really enjoying it. So I hadn't, I never assumed that I was going to get deep into software. It just kind of snuck up on me and I should have known it since I was a geek as a little kid. Well, uh, like Richard, I also uh, set fire to many radios and tape recorders when I was a kid. Unlike Richard, I didn't rebuild them. <laughs> um, my interest in software started when my father brought home a TRS-80 Model 4 and uh, a cartoon guide to computer science and a little book on teaching yourself the basic language. And uh, I just uh, ate it up and went and, you know, locked myself in my room. And um, <clears throat> I uh, 
was into telecommunications from an early age and soon got the attention of my peers. <laughs> is, that, is that how you say I was a hacker? Yeah. Without really offending anybody? So yeah, I was into, into that whole thing for a while and then realized that, well, that's no way to make a living. So uh, I've been a musician for a long time and um, wanted to make a go of that, but as soon as I got to Berklee School of Music and saw all the homeless musicians wandering around Boston with great chops, I thought, maybe I'll look into computer programming as a career so then I can make some money so I can do what I want musically. Uh, so that's where I got my start and, of course, got an IBM PC XT when the clone craze hit and uh, found Quick Basic and then Basic 7 PDS and then learned assembly language. I, mean, I skipped right over C. I went from Basic to assembly language and, uh, and then C++ and VB from there. So I was, this, this will be shocking to people who know me, but I was a classic nerd uh, at about 12 years old. And I was somewhere between electronics and maths, but I wasn't really totally into either of them. And then I got my hands on the computer for the first time. And in the first lesson that I took, I actually corrected the teacher and fixed his code. Nice. <laughs> and that was the uh, that was the the end of the choice for me. I, I knew what I wanted to do after that. So uh, since then, I've had all sorts of computers. Taught myself uh, basic, I think, is how most people started, and then. Uh, got into uh, all sorts of other programming languages along the way. Nice. Uh, so, uh, was this podcast uh, your first attempt at something like this, or were there experiments and projects that came before? So for us, probably Dick should tell our story. Okay. Um, well, let's let the .NET guys go first, and then I'll, then I'll spin the yarn. Well, then Carl should tell a story because he started the show. I came later. Okay, okay we'll, sure. we'll take it at this end then. Sure. Well, uh, it was the first podcast or first audio thing that I had ever done, um, uh, audio interview. But before that, um, when, it, when I got, I think my, the career started when I got to Crescent Software and started writing for Basic Pro Magazine, which then be, uh, became Visual Basic Programmer's Journal, which then became Visual Studio Magazine. Uh, I was writing the Q&A column for them and uh, speaking at their conferences. I think I spoke at the first V-Bits um, in San Francisco. And then uh, started writing lots of articles and I wrote a couple of books on internet programming. And then started a website in 94 with uh, Gary Wisniewski from, um, from Apex Software called Carl and Gary's VB homepage, and we were really the first Visual Basic page on the internet. So I had always been in the community, certainly in the basic community and in the Visual Basic community before .NET, and .NET was just the next logical extension. I became a regional director when .NET uh, 1 hit um, for Microsoft, and MVP after that, quite after that. But it was at the, those conferences and in the, um, in, the, in the speakers' lounges of those conferences where I had the best conversations, not only with other regional directors, but with other speakers, and discovered that I think the rest of the world would like to hear these conversations. And I'd always been a fan of public radio. So uh, I decided to um, call my friend Mark Dunn, who had done some training with me in the past, who had a good voice, and he's from Atlanta, so he talks slowly and deliberately, whereas I'm more a little more frenetic in stream of consciousness, so I thought he'd be a good co-host. 
And honestly, we thought, along with Pat Hines, who was the first guest in August 2002, we thought that our grandparents would be the only people who would ever listen to this, you know. But we, uh, my, I had my grandparents are coders too. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so anyway, we put, uh, uh, you made MP3s and linked them on the Franklin's Net website, which is my training company at the time. And uh, they just, people really loved them. And they, we got a lot of instant feedback that they wanted more. And of course, the portable uh, MP3 player revolution began right there. And iPods were, of course, really uh, late to the game in terms of portable MP3 players, but they became dominant. And then, uh, of course, podcasts in 2004, 2005. And uh, we were right there with lots of shows at that time. So it just sort of snowballed for me. But this is, so it's not really the first media thing that I've done, but it certainly was that for that medium, yeah. So for the for the Java Posse, um, I got an iPod back in oh two thousand and three, probably two thousand and four, and like a lot of people, I was looking for content to put on it, and uh, I found a couple of things called podcasts at the time. One of them was uh, uh, very formative. It was Tony Snyder Dennison's um, The Roadhouse. It's a blues podcast, and I uh, loved it. Still listen to it today. But what I got out of listening to that was, hey, if this guy can do it, I can too. And so I started actually doing one by myself, which was sort of like blogging my life. And uh, it it did quite well, even though it was just me. <laughs> but I, I figured that... It's the voice, Dick. It, well, I figured that there was um, probably more more to go. And so I looked around. The one thing I know about is programming. I'm doing Java as my day job. And I looked around to see if there was a Java podcast, and there was a guy starting one up called Brandon Werner, and he created this this podcast called the uh, JavaCast. And so I got involved with that, and we did four episodes, and then it just kind of collapsed. Uh, but I had a taste for it at that point. So I went back to some friends of mine that I'd worked with, uh, Tor Norby and Carl Quinn at the time, on the... Uh, oh, the, the Rave Project. Project Rave, or Java Studio Creator. Sun Java Studio. Sun Java Creator. Studio Creator, as it became known. Project Rave was a much better name. Uh, and then uh, I'd met Joe on that as well, and we added Joe about episode 25. Sweet. So, for each of you, uh, how has your podcast's success affected your professional life? both uh, positively and negatively, if at all. So we get invited to a lot of conferences, which is great. The opportunity is great. It's just unfortunate we're not able to uh, to take advantage of that as often as we can. Yeah. Um, probably the biggest positive is going into a job interview, a lot of times the people that are interviewing you know who you are, and they just kind of sit there and smile and don't really have any questions. So <laughs> <laughs> that worked out pretty well for me. I think I've had the easiest job because Carl had already established a show when I showed up. You know, he, I, I was a guest on show number 69 and then uh, became the co-host as of show 100. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm the Johnny come lately. I'll, admittedly, we've done 620 episodes now, so we're, we're a little bit further on. But uh, I realize that's double what the Java Posse has done, like almost exactly double. 
Wow, that's weird. Yeah, that is kind of weird. And you know, we well, our upside is we're doing two a week these days. We have for the past few years, so. We went from one a week down to one every other week. So. There you go. You're going the wrong direction, man. More. <laughs> more is better. We'll be talking about revenue models soon. Yeah, I think we'll, yeah, that's a good conversation right there, is it, that, that whole side of things. Uh, I started out as a, as a sort of IT slash developer. I've always been some of an infrastructure guy, and I think it's my hardware background. And I did software development as part of that. Because, you know, the two kind of went together. But uh, what it really did to my career more than anything was, I guess in the middle 90s, I got smitten with thinking. I did a little training and wrote some courseware and got involved in conferences from a planning perspective as well as as a speaker's perspective. And I, I have a passion for content planning. It's a weird reality. But you know, the nice thing about doing Don and Rocks is we do 104 episodes a year. And, and generally, I come up with the topics and the guests and, and Carl handles all the production side of things. So we, we work together well that way. But uh, like, you know, the same way that, that Carl Quinn said, we, you know, we get involved with a lot of conferences. I help with the planning of about 15 conferences a year now. So I've managed to find a way to make a job where all I do all day, every day, is think about what's going to be important for developers three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now. Whether we're making shows, we're making conferences, we're writing books, we're planning magazine editorials, those are all things I do. And, and so it's really become, in a lot of ways, my career is thinking about new projects and talking to people about where those things are going and, and sort of having a sense of the gestalt in the .NET world. Sweet. So, it, it, yeah, I guess to answer your question, it owns me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. Wow. Here's a contrasting answer to that question. So, I did, I've done lots and lots of public speaking. Uh, even as early while I was at Borland working on Paradox for Windows, I used to do a lot of the talks at the Borland conference, et cetera. And um, the ones SD West and SD East. Won the Java Super Bowl a couple times. That was fun. Um, went on to work on Jabler, was an architect of Jabler and actually a bunch of stuff there and did lots and lots of speaking. So I've always been uh, comfortable doing speaking stuff. Actually, I should go backwards. Uh, in college, I was the MC for a lot of the events at Santa Clara University. So I'm just happy on the mic in front of a group. Um, when these guys started doing this podcast, I was, uh, Carl was at Sun, Tor was at Sun, I was at Sun, and Dick was our biggest customer. <laughs> and when they started the podcast, it was like, we don't want to overload this with sun. You know, we need to make it more balanced. Carl had just left, I think, to go to Google. Right, right. Um, so it you know, worked to do him. And then I left and went to Apple so that I could be on the podcast. That was my actual reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing careers because I want to be on this That's podcast. Right, exactly. <laughs> that was my reason not. So anyway, um, the podcast itself has helped me a lot in that... I mean, same reason Carl said, you you go in an interview, you talk to people, and even now I'm an independent consultant for visual and interaction design. People just know who you are, which really helps mm -hmm. a lot. And it can be very strange, too. You're yes. walking into a Subway sandwich shop and somebody says, hey, I know, that I know you. you know? <laughs> it, is, it is really weird. And uh, actually, to that point, anytime we're walking around Java 1 or one of the big Java conferences, and we'll be talking, like in the line to get a a backpack or whatever. People are like, everybody turns around or staring at you. You're like, okay. They recognize Dick's voice. That's got to be what it is. They don't know us until we talk. Exactly. Yeah. 
That is a spooky side effect, isn't it? The people, you know, you literally, it's because you, as soon as you speak, I had this just at lunch today. Yeah. So once we, when Carl sat down, we started chatting and someone said, aren't you the guys from Don and Ron? They don't know who you are by your face. <laughs> exactly. It's your voice. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, for me, it's been nothing but a positive on my career. Um, I had, I was already done working for the man when I started .NET Rocks, so I never had the problem of, you know, uh, spending too much time doing doing that versus other things. I had a uh, a training company, as I said, I was teaching VB.NET and, and ASP.NET classes for my own company and doing on-site training and all that, and. Um, just the idea of radio was just so much more fun at that time. And I I love teaching. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Um, but, you know, after you do a few classes where there's only two people in your class and you're there the whole week giving 150% and, and yeah, that can, you, know, it's sort, you sort of impossible. think about something a little less cyclical, you know. I just want to point out that it's actually technically impossible. You can only give 100%. Yeah, okay, thanks. Right. <laughs> thanks. So, um, anyway, so I was, uh, so, so that was never a problem for me. Um, it, the, the biggest, the hardest decision I ever had to make was turn, was not doing any more public, um, classes, only doing on-site classes and tearing down the wall in the training room to make more room for the recording studio. You know, essentially saying, I am committed to this show now. This is what I do. And uh, it's been my full-time job ever since then. So it's been nothing but nothing but good for me. I think my my experiences are probably a little different from everybody else's. So uh, from the conference point of view, which everybody's mentioned, yes, we get invited to a ton of conferences, which is very flattering. And I wish I had time to go to all the ones that I was uh, invited to. On the career side, partly because I'm interested in small companies with, uh, you know, kind of startup schedules and uh, usually a small number of people, it hasn't been a huge differentiator for me doing podcasts. Most places I interview have never heard of me and don't listen to the podcast. And so, and they're also not engineering driven companies. A lot of them are science driven companies. So why would they? They're not going to listen to the Java Posse. And so from that point of view, it's, it's still just as much work for me to get in and interview and get in these small companies as it used to be beforehand. I would say it's up to my game in terms of uh, programming knowledge and also people skills. It, it is tremendous practice for improving how you deal with people and how you, how you interact with them. Uh, and I think I am seeing at least a silver lining, uh, from it with the, uh, escalate stuff that we're doing now because you know finally there's something that it's it's really helping me get the message out there uh, it's the first time i've been able to use the podcast for some kind of marketing which is uh, amazing this portion of dotnet rocks is brought to you by our good friends at telerik hey can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework 
to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Actually, I want to throw in, you mentioned some of the things that are somewhat negative, and maybe we could throw a couple more of those in. Uh, there's obviously great benefits, but some of the things that are negative, at least in the history that I've been on this show, is I was at Apple for a couple of years. As the, I was head of UI engineering for the online store where you buy Macs and iPods and stuff. And Apple is really, really strict about, you know, you do not public speak unless your name is Steve Jobs. You can't mention Apple. You can't talk about any sort of Apple stuff. So there was a two-year period where I couldn't, you know, I, I still said I was from Apple, but that was really risking my job every time I said that. Wow. Like quite literally risking yeah. my job. And I had that conversation a couple of times with higher up people at Apple just saying, hey, I don't talk about Apple when it comes up. And I would literally have to recuse myself anytime you know, Apple at all came up. It was just totally silent. Can't talk about it. Do you guys have rituals where you become clear? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Does Xenu mean anything to you? <laughs> so to take that point a little bit further, I think I've actually, I, I, can, I have a pretty good case for saying that uh, I've lost at least a couple of potential jobs because of the podcast. Because really? The, uh, the community involvement, which I feel is uh, somewhat of a privilege and somewhat of a duty at this stage, is enough of a concern that the company says, well, we like you, but we're a bit concerned about the amount of time you spend doing community stuff. And we don't want that for our company. And it's not like you guys do the show during the day. No, it isn't. But there are times that interviews come up or, you know, things like that, or there's time away for conferences. It's and most the startups don't want that. Yeah. Yeah, wow. which I find interesting because I think employers would value someone who can be out in the field. I don't know if you guys know who Rocky Latka is, but in the .NET world, he brought his company into the .NET market by his, by his uh, you know, community involvement. He basically said, I will work for you. I will get a salary. I will write books. I will speak at conferences. And I'll you know, write software and stuff. And you know, your name will be all over it. And... You, you know, as long as I keeps me at my job and keeps me happy, I'm good. And they got behind him and they let him do all these conferences and speaking and, and everything else. And it turns out that, you know, the company is like a, a really good uh, um, uh, contract development shop and just totally embraced him like that. I mean, that sounds like a perfect synergy, though. I mean, yeah. He's effectively a a marketing slash evangelist for that right. company and the platform the company works in. But yeah. also a guy who leads the edge on the research side of, you know, I knew Silverlight was going to make it when Rocky Laka liked Silverlight. Right. Like there's a guy who's no brass tacks. This guy makes software work. He makes his, sure his organization can do things right. And when he's gone end to end on a technology and approves it, it bloody works. And I, I, I mean, I, that to me, from a show perspective, we were very excited when Rocky liked the technology. Like, that was a good news. But I think from Magenic's perspective, too, it's like this is a guy who vets technology for his organization. Yeah. Right. And that sounds awesome. The, the difference, though, between your podcast and our podcast is we all have full-time jobs. Right. And the podcast is a volunteer thing we do on the side. Yeah. And we don't have sponsorship. And I know at some point we're going to talk about yeah. that. We do it... 
purely there's no money involved for us at all. Well, we might as well talk about it now. Since yeah, yeah that seems like a <laughs> way to segue. Uh, <laughs> good, so, good on you. Yeah. How about you guys go ahead and unpack for the group because it's one of the ways in which your podcasts differ is in your at least current uh, stance in regards to sponsorships. Unpack that for the group. Well, I guess I'll take that. Um, the Basically, I, I started... I went to my ISP, which was right across the hall from me, and I said, will you let me do this? I'm going to be leaning on you for bandwidth until the time comes where you tell me, you know, we have to do something else. And he said, of course, I'll do whatever I can. Just, you know, keep it going, and when it gets bad, I'll tell you. So it got bad after about a year. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, um, he uh, upgraded, but he still wasn't keeping up. And the bill got to be quite expensive. So I went to Microsoft and I said, and first, for the record, Richard and I don't take money from Microsoft. We're, we are regional directors for Microsoft, but it's an unpaid position. Yeah, regional director is a terrible title because you don't work for Microsoft, you don't have a region, and you don't direct anything. Yeah. And most of the time we spend criticizing them. And we're, we're sort of an outside, inside critic group that we can, without fear of losing our jobs, tell them exactly what us and their, our customers think about a particular decision or a particular technology or whatever. And so that's the value to them. So um, we, I, I went to Microsoft and I said to the MSDN group, Chris Sells, actually, and, and I said, hey, is there anything you guys could maybe host us, you know, to take the load off? And they said, sure. Chris basically walked down to his boss's office and said, can we set up a you know website for, for Carl and .NET Rocks? And, and they did. And, and that helped for a while, but we still had our main download site. So the very first sponsor that we got was uh, Data Dynamics. And they essentially agreed to pay essentially the minimum that we needed to support our bandwidth bill. And, and that was good. We also got uh, a little bit of bandwidth help from Microsoft but in one year, but not much after that. Um, then that got us to the next phase where we could expand, and we spent that whole year, I spent that whole year, going to different companies and looking for uh, a more solid partner that, we could, that could fund us to the next level. And turns out Telerik was that company, and they... Uh, Telerik is a, I don't know if you know this about them, but they're located in Eastern Europe, in Sofia, Bulgaria. And Sofia, Bulgaria has been, for the last 10 years, a real up-and-coming um, metropolis in terms of technology. And the cost of living is relatively cheap, and brain power is abundant, and uh, the two make a really good uh, combination. So they, they were looking for a place to advertise where they could stick out, and we were looking for uh, a company to sponsor us that we had products that we believed in. So we basically used their products, loved them, went to the other regional directors, said, what do you think of Telerex products? They all said great things about them. So we basically took a chance and, and we uh, started a long uh, uh, relationship with them. And they've pretty much you know, been our, 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 our biggest partner through the whole growth of .NET Rocks. And it's funny because we attribute our growth to them and they attribute their growth to us. Nice. You know, they really feel that that whole synergy worked to their benefit. And today they're a huge, you know, company. They're the largest uh, tool company in the .NET space. I learned about them through you guys. 
yeah. through listening to you guys. Yeah. A lot well, of and it, that's been the fun. You know, the reality is if we're making a link at developers, we need tools to be good at it. Like, I don't see the fact that people sell those tools as a bad thing. In fact, I see it as a really good thing because it means they're going to be around tomorrow when I need more help. So I've never been shy about talking about products out there. Um, often we focus on, on the free products in .NET, but we also talk about the paid products because in the end, you know, we write, nobody writes software for free. There's a compensation somewhere in there. It may not be cash always, but it often is. So the fact that, you know, we're being paid for our work, they should be paid for their work as well. And it, it's a constructive thing, ultimately, that we all get to keep doing what we're doing. And so Telerik, uh, you know, it, it's just a nice synergy. We, it, it's important to Carl and I that we're taught, we promote products we really believe in. That's it. You know, we won't just yeah. take anybody's money. No shilling. Yeah. Going on. No way. Yeah. It's an interesting contrast just between the two developer communities in general, or platform communities, I should say, mm -hmm. how in the, the Java side of the ecosystem, there's a lot more things that are generally free and right. people don't get paid to make. So there's a different kind of culture. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ping Dick to talk more about that. But I also wanted to pull out that you guys have really monetized your podcast. It's your, your primary thing you do, et cetera. We have full-time jobs, but we have at least had discussions. I want to make sure people know that, that we've talked a bit about it, like who could we partner with in a way that wouldn't mess up the our relationship with the Java, Java community and ecosystem. And it's a lot, I how to describe it, it's a lot touchier in I, that space. And I mean, the trade-off is not doing the show. Like, your listeners are suffering from the fact that you're not doing a weekly show anymore. <laughs> That's true. Just saying, right? Like... We we get a we get a show out a week still. We we still do manage to get a show out every week. It's just not Which always good. a live actual yeah. recording show. Now, I mean, I, I remember a conversation I had with Carl back in 2005, where he's like, "I like when the word podcast had now been invented, and we were doing good things in that area." He says, "This is what I want to do," and and most people aren't aware of this, but Donnet Rocks is not our only show. We've built a production company that produces podcasts. We have branded podcasts like .NET Rocks and DNR TV and Hansel Minutes and Run As Radio. And we also do white label podcasts. So other companies come to us and we do the production work for them to make podcasts. We did Nintendo's first and only podcast. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that. Carnival Cruise Lines. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a lot of companies and maybe we shouldn't name names because generally, you know, you need agreement from them to do that. But yeah. there are other companies that have come to us, including Microsoft, to do production work for them. Because in the end, both Carl and I have a bit of an audio background as well. Him more than, so than me. I did radio and things in the past. But making good-sounding stuff is an interesting business all by itself. And uh, in the end, in order to do .NET Rocks justice, we built an infrastructure that can do many more things. And so keeping that engine fed from a business perspective is takes a lot of stuff. And so that's just part and parcel of so, what we do. Yeah. I think this is a good point to jump in on. There's there's a few things in there that are, are nuggets to, to chew on now. I, I think the first one is that certainly from my point of view, and I think you guys, possibly not Joe, but I know uh, Carl and Tor feel the same way. We're software engineers that have this fun hobby of recording. Right. And to, it's not something I want to do professionally necessary. I, 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 I'm, I love being a software engineer. So that's, that's going to be my primary focus. Given that, what falls out from that is 
I am currently working for two startups, not not one, because that would be too easy. <laughs> and so time is a real issue, and we barely have enough time to put the podcast out. The idea of attracting sponsors and working on biz dev and all that kind of thing is just an extra workload, which I'm afraid to take on. Mm-hmm. And I have been for several years. There's a lot of questions about it as well, like if we start taking money from a company and we start getting dependent on that company and then they don't like something we say do we change what we say? That There are those questions hanging sure. out there. But that's not the big one. The big one is, I just don't have time to deal with this right, right. now. So that's that's been the thing that's held us back. And, you know, that's, that's okay with me. If at some point, I mean, we do have this kind of unofficial relationship with Atlassian, who we love. And one of the reasons we continue that relationship is it is zero administration on my end. Mm-hmm. It's like they just... I, I say should, to them, hey, I've got this what, idea. You should explain what that is. Uh, well, Atlassian, they, they sponsor beer and food and T-shirts and various other things for all of our live Old events. Parties. and yeah, Higher parties sometimes. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of synergy. It's never direct money. It's mm. stuff that benefits kind of the, the audience and the, the community. But it's also zero administration. Mm. I, I go to them and I say, I, I fire off an email that said, we, you know, we're, we're doing this. Do you guys want to get involved with beer and maybe T-shirts and a promotion of some kind? And they just make it happen. So that's kind of the perfect arrangement for me. Well, the thing that I hear, uh, what we learned, at, Richard and I learned at dinner with you guys earlier, is that your show is basically you four guys most of the time talking from your own experiences and your own knowledge and your own understanding of what's going on. Whereas Richard and I, that's not the case. We are... We are experienced developers who are now, who have guests, who are there telling the story. And it's our job to sort of step back and draw out what they have to say rather than sort of interject our own thing. I mean, we will have opinions, but we certainly don't. We we want to make sure the guests know they're not being challenged by us, you know, <laughs> that they have that their opinion matters and they're he- we're here to get that opinion from them. Yeah, the show's about the guest. Yeah, so it's different, I think. Mm-hmm. I would say we have some of those. We do interview people, but it's the majority of our episodes where we just cover the news, and it really is our sort of collective experience in the industry talking about stuff. And your it's perception of what's happening in your space. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I, wanna, and we, I have we, to at least rebut a, a comment that my own colleague Dick made. Um, I used to be very much a hardcore software engineer, and I've now moved more and more and more into UI. Now I do user interface and visual design and photography stuff. So I've stepped off of being an engineer, but I still, I still know it, and I still have an opinion. So. Yeah, I find myself suddenly being an owner of businesses in computing rather than being the guy who writes the code. Right? I, I have a number of ventures in there, but and it, it's like one day you wake up and look in the mirror and go, dude, when's the last time you wrote production code? How did that happen? And it, and it ultimately is, I have a lot of folks I work with that write really, really good code. I'd argue better code than I can write. But they don't want to deal with the, how do I organize this business? How do I fund this business? How do I sell this product? Those kinds of things. And I picked up those jobs and they ultimately become your focus. Well, and for me, the, I actually do still write code. The code that I write, though, is code for to support the show and the company. So mm-hmm. it's the publishing software. It's the conversion software. It's the log readers for reporting, that kind of stuff. So. So it's so it's interesting in hearing the uh, hearing input from the two different podcasts because if you listen to the input, 
uh, and you think about the communities that these two podcasts support, the centralization, the tendency towards centralization of the Microsoft and .NET community and the decentralization of the Java community definitely come through in some of your commentary. And, and so to that point, to, to segue into the next question, how has the community around the platforms that you guys cover influenced both your format as well as the content and your approach to the show? I think the .NET community has been hugely influenced by the Java community, not in from, from .NET 1.0. Don't you think it's because .NET's a copy of Java? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. We head scratcher, yeah. and yeah, we, well, just, uh, we just, you know, you can say, and that's the flip answer. It's a copy of Java, but the real answer is, yeah, the real answer is that, yeah, Microsoft saw the success of Java, saw what you guys were, what you guys saw, what Sun was doing right with Java, but they also saw things that they could improve upon, and they used the model of Java to to do something very similar, which is Microsoft's MO, by the way. They're not innovative, you know, from the get-go. They see what's popular and what's working, and then they essentially do their version of it. That's gonna, what they do. I'm going to counterbalance my own flippancy and say, I think the real genius there are guys like, Anders Halsberg, who I work yeah. with at Borland, who I think is a just straight-up genius. So do we. Absolute genius nobody guy. doesn't love Anders Halsberg, right? I mean, yeah. It's the most amazing guy. And yeah. ar arguably, without C-sharp, .NET would not have been the success True. it Agreed. is. So he looked at Java and was actually at Borland when I think the seeds of C-sharp were born. Because mm -hmm. we had lots of meetings with the folks at Sun and with other companies that were working on it. And he wanted properties, he wanted events, he wanted all the sorts of things that C-sharp added that made it a one level of abstraction up to talk about component architecture as opposed to class library architecture. And, you know, he was banging his head on the wall. And I was, I'm on Anders' side on a lot of this stuff. And if you're a Java Posse listener, you know that. Um, but I think what Microsoft did was got very smart and said, okay, this has serious legs in the industry. A lot of people are moving their stuff in this direction. Um, let's try to grab some people that yep. understand that model and pull them in and have them embrace the Microsoft platform to do that. So, yeah. you know, Anders' first maneuver was, was it JDirect, which was the, you know, really, really easy calling syntax natively in Java that allowed you to call into DLLs and things. Mm. So it let Win32 developers, which he had been working with with Delphi, just immediately leverage their stuff on the Java platform. But of course, it only ran on Windows, which at the time was by a very, very long uh, margin, you know, was the leading sort of consumer platform. Still is, by the way, Joe. Just yeah, saying. Yeah. Apple, it's in the blood. So anyway, I think they've taken, you know, people like Anders, to your point, and leveraged what the, the core fundamentals of Java, where it's a virtual yep. machine, garbage collection, all that sort of stuff, yeah. and said, okay, let's just add some things onto this and continue. And they had been doing that kind of thing with Visual Basic, believe it or not. The Visual Basic runtime is the little virtual machine. And they had been, you know, doing garbage collection since, you know, Quick Basic. So the ideas weren't foreign, but just they keep taking that to the to the process level, you know? Yeah. Holy crap. Wait, I'll take the rest. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Let me kill it. His bottle, after all. Just really please One bottle up. down. One Mis down. Mr. Wagner, I'd like to point out, we have delivered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One empty bottle of Maker's Mark. Wow. One down, four to go. One. <laughs> so anyway, uh, 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 the, the, the question originally was, 
you know, the influence of the, of, um, on the community. And I see that to this day. I've seen the influence of, of Java on the .NET community because I see um, the Java community is a lot freer to experiment with um, things that are outside of, you know, of, of the company, if you will. And um, all of those things have really cultivated in the last five years in the .NET community, NUnit and NHibernate and the N version of all these Java tools. Uh, you know, the N, and quite frankly, a lot of .NET developers have looked around and said, wow, you know, that's really cool. We're going to embrace that stuff. And, and that turned into different languages and, you know, so there's the, the whole alt.net movement was born out of that. So, uh, and we think it's all great. I mean, it all works to not, not just to Microsoft's benefit. That's fine that they, that they, it pushes them to do things like entity framework and to do things that are a little bit different, but also for the whole community. It just makes it a richer experience. So I, I'm, you, I'm you, very happy that the, the Java community you, has. You're describing had that Java as a, cautionary tale for .NET developers. Yeah. No, no, it's a certainly an influential uh, sphere. Absolutely. I can, yeah. I, can, I can comment to that a little bit. So I, I, I think Barry's already mentioned that there is this kind of just, I don't know, quantum shift between the viewpoints that the .NET and the Java communities have. And you see that all the time in our thought leaders. So we, we have some brilliant thought leaders in the Java space. Two that spring to mind instantly are Guy Steele, and Martin Odersky, of course. Those mm -hmm. are two huge uh, guys. They are very big into education and research, and they want to do stuff. I'm not saying it's wrong to do it for money, but their motivations are different. They want to do stuff because it's interesting and cool. Uh, number one, they're not averse to making money, but that's a secondary thing. And what you get out of that is some tremendous steps forward without any real thought about how it's going to be brought to market. And I think that's the story of Java right there, is some really, really cool stuff without necessarily a whole bunch of thought about how it's going to be marketed or sold. Uh, some of it works out really well, like Java, for example. Uh, some of it doesn't do so well, like uh, Genie is a good uh, yep. example of a great technology that never really went anywhere. Uh, but it's it's a rich ecosystem that I love. And I think it has influenced the way that we do our podcast. It's that same kind of spirit of, you know, let's follow what's cool and go hang the, the money side for now. Let's talk about what we're really interested in. But I don't know any geek that ever is ultimately motivated by money. It's solving the problem that's, that's always interesting. Yeah. I would argue that the Microsoft engine is better at taking the ideas that come along and turning them into marketable product. That's only talent on the marketing side. It's not talent in the inventing side. Probably because the inventing the, side, I think, is the same. Right. Probably because the market is business software where there are budgets to buy tools and, and to buy, uh, buy services and servers and things. And it's something that, that frankly, I mean, there was a point in time in the Java space where paying for a JBuilder license was what you did. Yeah. Until I mean, Eclipse had... came along and didn't suck just enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's only ten, degrees of ten suck. Second version of that story. Yeah. I mean, JBuilder was 80% market share. Um, it was $2,500 for an enterprise version of the product. And the ROI discussion that our direct sales would have was like a no-brainer. It's like, here. Here's how much more productive, here, here's how much money you'll save by spending it up front, et cetera. And then the really big companies wanted to unseat 
not necessarily unseat the tools company. I don't think we were the target. I think it was more, we need more people to dump tools in here and make them a commodity. So yeah. IBM came out with Eclipse, which I'll tell you quite frankly was a lot of it was a copy of what Jable there was. Sure. They just, it wasn't as good, but it was free. So the delta between $2,500 and zero is too large of an ROI discussion. You'll but put the, up with a lot. But there's an interesting dollars. truth in open source, which is that it may be slow, but it, you know, software never goes away. Bit by bit, oh yeah, the features get added and they never go away. And ultimately there's a point where, I mean, one would argue that Visual Studio is there where there's a point where there's too many features. Yeah. There's a point where you're done. And even Eclipse has finally now built up to that point where through open source efforts, it's done enough. No, I totally agree. And I'll actually, I'll even concede this. I think the Microsoft development experience of how well things are packaged and the usage model for different libraries all come in. They all click together. It works very nicely. It's very Delphi-esque for, <laughs> for reasons you can assume. In the end, all good all ideas come Delphi. from Borland. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. <clears throat> but it's, uh, I think it's a much better developer experience. It's less stressful. It's, it's, easier to catch on and learn and be productive in, but you guys are going to love this. You have to deploy it on Windows. Yeah. And that's a game killer. It's, it's good for 90% plus of the market. For mm -hmm. desktops, not for servers. Yeah, yeah, not for servers. Like, let's get yeah. real numbers. How many True. No. commercial, actual server-side things are running on Windows? And I think the number is really low. Visual Studio can be done when I don't have to buy ReSharper. <laughs> and isn't it funny that uh i mean dot net shops will chunk out an extra 200 250 dollars and not bat an eye just yep. to be able to do reasonable test driven development that's part of baseline eclipse yeah not bat an eye you put a java developer and say oh by the way and you have to buy resharper i know that was 2500 dollars but also, you need ReSharper if you're actually going to do what we do in for clips. what a hundred and fifty bucks. But I think for a from a company's perspective, the tools cost is still negligible. Like the fact that tools are free on the Java side doesn't matter to businesses. Well, especially when you look at the return of the average piece of software. I mean, yeah. the average piece of good old fashioned CRUD app is you're doubling or tripling the productivity of the user who uses it, who was doing that stuff manually before. Like our, it's a joke what the cost of tools and resources is for developers in terms of the return to businesses. So, you know, the difference between zero and $2,500 or what's Studio Ultimate now? 13 grand? Well, assuming it ships, Richard. Well, yeah. we talk about Studio 2010, <laughs> but, but my point is the total cost of everything that developer, this is why development, the industry of software development can suffer a 60% failure rate because our returns when we work are so colossally high, right. they consume all of the costs of failure and tools by a long way. And we developers, we don't. Our companies a ton of money. And this is your business hat showing. Developers, we don't think in terms of return on investment. We think of, did my code compile? Is it working? Right. You know, we don't That's think, I just saved my boss, you know, a million dollars a year. We don't think of that. If we did, we'd be asking for raises constantly. Well, and, and, and there lies my point, which is we make our companies tons and tons of money. Right. We really do. As, yeah. And I, I do have the business hat on these days. And I, that's why I'm in the software business. Because even with our failure rates as bad as they are, we net huge profits. Yeah. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety-five. 
Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. So I gotta, I'm going to throw out a curveball here. I actually think all the interesting stuff happening in software today is in really neither of these camps. I think all the real innovation is I would not argue with you. I think it's happening on the web. It's happening with scene graph types of user interfaces. It's happening... Oh, I, I think that's because you're. Yeah, that's that's your focus. I would say um, new new ideas, new languages like Haskell and Scala have a tremendous amount of innovation that they're causing, and but I'm talking about a ton of interest. I'm talking about things that are hitting the street, actual businesses being successful, doing stuff. What's making money? Yeah, words? what's making money and what's getting real traction in the world? Not developer interests. No, no, Angry that, Birds. That's making to, money, right? Yeah, <laughs> to that point. To that point, um, now as, as someone who's a currently inactive Debian maintainer, uh, I can tell you that the Java community doesn't know what open source means. Yeah, <laughs> true. They just think they do. All things are relative. Uh, and at the end of the day, they're, they're still way more um, subsidized than, than the majority of the long-haired freaks like me out there. And uh, so question for you guys, and, and it centers around... Similarities and differences between Java and .NET uh, communities, and what Sun's role in the arc of things was. Because uh, if if anybody's listened to Java Posse, I, I think uh, Joe is where I learned the the phrase that Sun is awesome at uh, coming up with great stuff and not knowing how to make money yeah. with it. And for a number of years, I think that. Um, Invisible corporate teat allowed people to think that Java really was open source, but it was actually a heavily, heavily, heavily subsidized yeah. commercial development platform. And so what I'd like for you guys, can you guys unpack for us your perspectives on the differences and the commonalities between Java and .NET as commercial platforms and the hook at the end, now that Oracle's at the helm? What will we see? He said the O word. Well, they're, first, before you answer that, similar now. I see a continuum. I see a, 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 on one side of the continuum, you have the Linux people who can never make a dollar and a half no, for rainbows, anything they do. Rainbows and unicorns. You gotta, <laughs> getting student discounts to Dragon Con. Yeah, yeah right. nice. Yeah. I'm just going to well, throw out the magical iPad, which I always bring up whenever the rainbows and unicorns come up, man. Ah. Steve, Steve said it's, he's the only one I've ever seen talk about magic on stage. But well, it's that, funny. Well, that's, <laughs> the, that's that side. And then, you know, you see, um, uh, you see Java, you see uh, the, the half open source subsidized things. On the, the Microsoft side, you know, where there's one, Microsoft I think is next, and they're sort of like 60-75%, where there's a company behind it, but they have, just like the PC, right, they made the operating system and everybody in the world made components for the PC. It, they had to do printer drivers for everybody else's hardware. They they sort of have, that. that's a big job to do, right? Yeah. Then you have Apple, who's completely closed and they're probably making the most money because they have the most control. So you have 100% control, 
on one side, some most control, 70, 60% control in the Microsoft. Java, I don't know. I'm not a Java guy, so I'm thinking, you know, maybe 40, 30%. You're and saying, then yeah. Linux is like zero, yep. zero control. So, I mean, it all comes down to at, when you're talking about making money, how much control you have. And, and that's for better or for worse what, yep. what the money equation is all about. Can I just to, got to represent Apple a little bit here. <laughs> They're in a completely different business than the other companies you described. Apple's a device company that has a software infrastructure to support the sale of those devices. So all their closedness, and I'm doing air quotes for the audio people, uh, their closedness is around focusing on the best possible user experience for the end user. They don't, I don't want to say they don't care about the developer, but if there was a battle between something that's easier for an end user in the larger scheme of things versus developer, then they don't care about the developer at all. So it's not yeah. about openness for the developers. It's about the end user being able to pick the thing up and it just works and you never have an experience that makes you say, damn, I hate this thing. And if they had a foresight to have not done the AT&T deal, I guarantee they would not have done that deal. Oh, believe me, I'm not knocking Apple yeah. for control. I have an iPhone. I had an iPad, but I left it on a plane and somebody stole it. Oh. Yes, I can admit that because I'm secure in my sexuality. <laughs> but, you know, Apple never could have pulled off what they, you know, arguably the most compelling thing about the iPhone was Steve Jobs' deal with IT&T. Because it was the first time that a phone manufacturer slash software company took control of the platform from the carrier. Right. That was a big deal. It was important. Carrier, it's incredibly sure. important. It changed yeah. everything from that point forward. He should have breached that deal years ago, but okay, so he didn't. Arguably, the iPhone would not have worked as well as it did if it wasn't all AT&T. We don't necessarily perceive the problems of going inter-carrier has for apps, for bandwidth, for SMS communications. Like there's all kinds of problems that Apple dodged because there was only one carrier mm. that established this market so that now, you know, you wait. You wait till you see what happens with the iPhone on Verizon trying to communicate with the iPhone on AT&T. We're getting a whole new class of problems we just haven't seen before, but we don't care. There's enough product out there. There's enough intent out there that now the carriers will be forced to create the bridges between the networks that need to be there because the popularity is there. But for it, the, for the, I think for the most part, Steve has really pushed the phone, you know, the phone platform to standard internet, you know, internet. Standard. As long it's, as that standard was a standard he defined, right? Yeah, but, but so it's time, yeah. right? So that was it's the reason he did. Steve, he's a spokesperson for the company. Yeah, I agree. It, there's a but he has, huge he has group a vision, of really right? freaking so smart people there that make all these right. actual decisions, right? So instead of using the phone carrier's protocols, they use TCP/IP for everything, right? So you're using email instead of MMS because he. He didn't want to do MMS for a long time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Finally caved in because people really needed it. Well, but, it is. But it shouldn't be a big issue now with Verizon because all your apps on your iPhone are really just internet apps. Well, it is interesting because the Apple device market is a much smaller market than business software, uh, you know, typically is. However, it it does go to show to you that those companies that can maintain control over their markets are going to be able to do more things than the companies that have had you know, that have had superior products, Sun, you know, they've had a superior product because they didn't have control, have lost it, have lost the market. So, um, you know, it, that's the dynamic that we're dealing with. Are we out of time? We are on time. We've got about 20 minutes left. So okay. in, in, the, in this converging 
arc toward a close, how can we all just give peace a chance? Nice. <laughs> I love it. And I, and I would argue that .NET developers and Java developers have never got a, along as well as they do right now because we have so much in common. Agreed. We yeah. both have a mature platform. You know, in the early days of .NET, some of the best .NET developers I met were Java developers who switched. And so for the first couple of years, it was pretty, you know, .NET was the little cousin. Oh, isn't he cute? <laughs> and then as it grew up, it became somewhat more acrimonious. I think about the 2003, 2005, 2006 time slot where it was more acrimonious. But as both platforms are mature, we got way more in common than we got otherwise. And, and so, you know, you see, not only you see people migrating and working in both, but generally a respect for, hey, we've all battled the same set of problems. We've all had our ass kicked by our platform. We've all had, you know, dealt with versioning problems. Like, we've all been there now. .NET's at four. Java's at, I don't know where you guys are. How many versions have you shipped? Six. It's crazy. Six, know, it's about old. to get seven. Yeah. yeah. And so, we were, you know, we have more in common than we have otherwise. It's those darn Ruby on Rails guys. <laughs> I actually think the big heating things, and I made this comment earlier, is it's Android. I mean, Android's really? there. That's huge iOS stuff is there. It's huge. And just but isn't Android in the end Java anyway? Ahead, that is please. currently being decided in the yeah, courts. That's in the courts. Yes. <laughs> so I'd say from a, from a developer's point, it's Java. Yeah. Yeah. From a lawyer's point, it's not Java. <laughs> exactly. It depends yeah. on which lawyer you're talking to. Actually. Yeah. To yeah. me, the far more interesting conversation now is, are we the dinosaurs? What's that's, next? I yeah. think that's the point I was making. Mm -hmm. Is really that the the future lies in these mobile devices, and right now the foothold in the world is either an iOS or it's Android. And I know that Windows has a thing out there, but I just I don't see it you know, making I, it into and, the next. And layer. Joe, there's no problem making that conversation this year. We'll talk next year when we're kicking your ass. Sure. Well, but, and, well bring, you know what though? I mean, <laughs> to be honest, Richard and I have spent the last couple of years kicking Microsoft's ass for not having something out there. I mean. You know, we're, we, oh, they we like the to, kin. The we kin like to defend, uh, you know, our platform and everything, but they are late and, but that's a separate issue. The, I think the, I'm a hardware guy, so I'm going to fall back on the hardware and my hardware response says we're building old software on new hardware. Mm. All our machines have many cores and yeah. none of our software is good at it. Well, you have F sharp, which is, I believe, yeah. and I could be wrong about this, was inspired by a lot of the Scala. No, no, no. No, so no, let me, no, no, no they, they've, they've taken, they've taken parallel trajectories, but they're very independent, uh, development. But paths. definitely related, you know. Oh, yeah. Don yeah. Simon, those guys, they're Scala guys too. Oh, there's yeah. a relationship there's, there. There's huge, there's huge synergy, but oh god, I can't believe I used that word. Please strike that from the record right now. Um, guys, as long as you don't leverage huge, your synergy. There's a okay. huge amount of uh, cooperation between them. Uh, sure. Martin Odersky sits on the Microsoft Research Board. Uh, Don Symes has worked with uh, Martin directly at APFL. I mean, mm -hmm. that these are yeah. very much uh, cooperative uh, thrusts into functional programming. And I think functional programming is the thing that is being... Uh, levied or, or touted, or offered up yeah. as a way to deal with this problem with of multiple cores. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, and we both have solutions to that. And I think that the key thing is that the future looks rosy on both the managed runtimes, both the JVM and the CLR, because that's the real value they have. The languages, honestly, Java and C sharp are both. Last generation languages at I, this I point. Agree. We've got and to say it. Completely object centric, and object centric is inherently anti-parallel. Right. 
So here's the concern I have for both of us, which is I'm waiting for a, the Ruby on Rails event for parallelism. That in the end, both of our frameworks are inherently object-centric, are inherently serializable, they're very sing singleton-focused, and are not innately parallel. And somebody who has the nerve to really build something from the ground up that's parallel-centric all the way through is going to run right past it. Well, and that has the richness that the framework has well, today. I would argue, I mean, iOS and the phone and the, and the iPhone experience is a proof that even if the richness isn't there, you'll do it anyway. If it's a better solution, you'll do it. If somebody builds a better solution to harness parallelism this in a big way, good things will happen. Well, and this I think the problem with um, functional programming in general is that it really only is suited to typical, to, to some of those functional problems. Yeah. You know, large sets of data traversing, that kind of thing. I've yet to see a general purpose functional language that thrills me. Dick, start talking. <laughs> Dick is well, thrilled. I, 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 I could, I could name go. one that I'm sure I could thrill you with, but I'm not going to go there right now. That's, that's too specific. I, I think uh, I, I mentioned earlier on that we have some really interesting thought leaders. Uh, another two that spring to mind right now are Brian Getz and John Rose, who are both doing in, uh, you know, tremendous research into parallelism. Mm -hmm. And I think this ties in. This is such a huge area that we, we can't go here with the time that we've got left, other than to throw out our teaser. But I think one of the things that's happening with the you know, aforementioned Oracle acquisition is Oracle is trying to reestablish some of the control that was ceded during the sun years. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, ultimately, if they squeeze too hard, what's going to happen is something's going to pop out of the JVM <laughs> that isn't theirs, right. and that yeah. suits parallelism a lot more than it does right now. I think that a number of the thought leaders will jump on this, fork it, and make something that suits parallel computing a lot more than the JVM does so right now. So you don't see the JVM as a an impediment to parallelism? No, I, I think with the work that John Rose is doing right now, it's an active boon to it. You can do things in it. You've got an extra... So, uh, who was it? I'm trying to remember the name. A uh, famous quote that said, every problem in computing can be solved by an extra level of indirection. Yeah. 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 Uh, except, and there's a, there's a footnote to that, except for the problem of too many layers of indirection. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the one. But... The, the managed runtime of the CLR and the JVM is an extra level of indirection. It's the complex numbers to real numbers mm -hmm. that allows Laplace transforms and things like that to be done. It's, it's this level above. It's, it's, another, it's a step back that gives you a whole other dimension of the way that you can do things. And that's true for parallelism. The way that works with parallelism is if you've got a managed runtime and you have a for loop, you have the ability to unwind that for loop and make it parallel right. in a managed runtime. So that's that level of indirection. That's a, that's a basic example. But I, I think there's tremendous value in the managed runtimes, and I think they are the future. But I think one I of the potentials there, Nick, is that someone, what you're talking about is swapping out the underlying level in a level of indirection that then becomes more parallel. I want to change out the JVM leave the language and the IL layer is the same, but the JVM becomes inherently parallel. Right. Same and as it ever was. But I don't know that anyone's ever pulled that off, but it's because normally you just build on top. We're talking about going three layers down and swapping on a layer. If I we can pull that off... What does Azul do? That's the smartest guy I've ever met, if he can pull that one you off. You need to talk to John Rose sometime, because yeah. you'll walk away saying, that's the that smartest might be guy, that guy I've ever met. Remove the water at the bottom <laughs> of the ocean. <laughs> 
sorry, I just had to do, do David Byrne. Can we do a quick poll just of audience just to get an idea of how many people are even aware of the sort of move towards functional programming again is a key thing. So the, let's do that. How many people That's are, more than half the How many room. people do C sharp programming? Okay, and add to that how many people do Java programming? You know, C sharp and Java together. To both, to both. Either Lincoln's one. Both. I want you no, you don't have to do both. Either one. Not, it's meant, an or. Yes, I meant. That's two thirds of the room. Both groups, right? Here. Yeah. Okay, now how many of you are writing stuff either in like Scala or F sharp, etc.? Some function. Whatever program. platform just functional thing. Two, just a couple. Three, three, four. Oh, yeah. Dick, Dick's got his hand. Six right. or seven. And Dick counts for two all by himself. <laughs> so, so we'll call very, it seven. It was a very small percentage, but the, you guys are familiar with Moore's Law, where yeah. you know, it's now still expanding at the same rate, but it's number of processors. So the whole notion of sharding data and sharding processing into multiple things is what you got to do to keep up with the Joneses, effectively. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, Ray Kurzweil did a keynote at Java 1 this year. Uh, which was absolutely brilliant. First time I've seen him talk live. And he posited the idea that uh, Moore's Law doesn't just apply to transistors on chips, it applies to technology as well. And he in gave general. the Human Genome Project as a great example. Oh, a 15-year yeah. project that seven years in, they had decoded just less than 1% of the genome. And so everybody said, oh, it's a failure. You've only yeah. got 1% done. You've only got uh, eight years left to do it. The way Moore's Law works, a doubling every 18 months, you are bang on target for having the whole thing done inside of 15 years. And right. it's true. The functional, I believe, that this is my opinion, not fact, but I believe that functional is in this space. It's at something under 1%, but growing exponentially. And I think it's going to be a huge impact on the future of programming. Yeah, I think that's well, the next thing you're going to be programming in is something not necessarily just functional, but at least an object-oriented thing that has a lot of functional yeah. mechanisms in it. We have something to learn from all those beardy research guys that we thought that's were right. funny in, in university and we poked fun at because they were always talking about their Lisp and scheme programs. Yes. We, we <laughs> actually do have something to learn from them. And we said to them... You're smoking crack. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, actually, funny enough, most of them were, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Different issue. They were They're, right, nonetheless. Yeah. Well, Maybe speaking about the genome yeah. thing to totally derail, I, I'm listening to uh, uh, something in the news that they think within 10, 15 years, you'll be able to, you know, basically pee in a cup, send it off to a lab, and f with $1,000, get your entire genome. Oh, I'm... You can already, you can already do that you, now. You do that with it's it. It's going to be, it's going to be give two, you the email address for that. It's going to be two years and a hundred dollars by my reckoning, but there really? you go. Yeah. It's, yeah, mo really it's moving that, that fast right now. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, it's down to spitting in a, spitting in a test tube right now. That's literally today. the company that I work for does this. So. Really? Yeah. And you yeah. get most of your genome, not the whole. Wow. The, the bit that matters. So 99.5% of us are about the same as chimpanzees. So most yeah. of that doesn't are we, really matter. Are we matter. closer to fr fruit flies? No, no. Chimpanzees, chimpanzees are really, really close. Yeah. I've worked with a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> so we're coming up on the close uh, of our time. But um, thanks, guys. And on not only for this panel, but on behalf of uh, both developer communities, thanks so much for all of the work that you've put into your podcasts over the years. Uh, you're uh, a fascinating example of the success of the new media phenomenon, and you've meant a ton to all of us. And so on behalf of everyone here at Codemash 2011, as well as those out there listening via their MP3 player of choice, 
thanks a ton. Thank you. Ooh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. Indeed. We're just having fun. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.